Open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look at only verses 26 and 27 today, but we will finish the chapter. This is called, the lesson is called, A Super Powerful Prophecy Part 2. You know, the saddest tragedy to ever occur for Israel was that day when she missed her opportunity um, to recognize her Messiah. The day she missed the prophetically foretold day of her Messiah's arrival. It wasn't the day of his birth. Now, some will say it was. Um, so it wasn't the day of his birth. It wasn't the day of his baptism, which others say it was, you know, the prophecy pointed to his baptism. And it wasn't even the day he began his public ministry. Remember when he turned water into wine? It wasn't pointing to any of those days because those events all took place privately with very few eyewitnesses. Neither was the precise day of any of those events predicted by God through his prophets that very day, you know, that he would turn water into wine or that he was baptized or that he was born. Nor was any of them his public presentation to the nation officially as her Messiah, the prince. Remember, prince means ruler or king. But Palm Sunday was his official presentation to Israel as her Messiah. And remember, he did not silence the Hosanna shouts of the people proclaiming him to be king because they were true. It was true. He is their king. But it was a super tragic day for Israel because not one voice was heard crying above the Hosanna shouts of the crowd. Not one voice was heard saying, hey, this is the fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Isn't it amazing? Nobody got it. If anybody got it, it might have been one of the religious rulers, but they weren't about to make that announcement. So God had provided Israel with absolutely everything she needed to know to calculate the very day, the exact day that his anointed one, the Christ, would arrive before her as king. And she missed it. Think about that. For thousands of years, she had prayed for, she had longed for, she had waited for her promised Messiah, you know, the promised seed of the woman. And when he did come, she totally, completely, utterly missed it. Is that not a tragedy? Tragedy. She could have had, think about this too, she could have had the messianic kingdom at that time. She could have. And she could have avoided these past 2,000 plus years of the horrific persecution that she has suffered as she's been scattered across the world. But what did she fail? She failed a very important test. She failed her prophecy test, didn't she? That's why prophecy is so important. We need to know prophecy. But she failed her prophecy test, and there have been terrible consequences for her corporate rejection of her Messiah, her Savior, her Lord, the Christ. Well, we had left off last time by looking in our outline. We, we talked about the determined decree that God had decreed, you know, the 70 weeks upon Daniel's people. Um, and at the end of them, there were six infinitive purposes that would be accomplished. We saw all that in verse 34, 24. And then we started to look at the distinct divisions of this prophecy that are given to us in verses 25 to 27, although we only covered verse 25 in which we read about the first two distinctions, distinct divisions. The first one was 
the seven sevens, which would be 49 years, it was broken into that so that we would know that it was 49 years from the issuing of a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. We know exactly what decree that was. It was by King Artaxerxes of Persia given to his cupbearer, Nehemiah. We know the date of it. And it was from that decree, seven sevens, and Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And she was rebuilt in 49 years. And then you add another 60, the second division was 62 weeks of years. You add that to the seven, so you have 69 weeks of years, which is 483 years from the signing of that decree. You go forward 483 years, or 173,880 days, and you arrive at Palm Sunday, amazingly, right? Just, just beautiful. And he said, you know, if you'd only known this day, the time of your visitation. But we discussed those two, and now that brings us to, oh, and by the way, when he arrived on Palm Sunday and was officially rejected by the religious rulers because they represented the nation, not too happy about that, but that's the way it goes. From God's perspective, a country is represented by her rulers. So, you know, we're represented by what's going on in Washington. <laughs> um, but that's how it is. And so officially, because the rulers rejected him and said, shut the people up. They shouldn't be calling you king. Um, and they rejected him that day. Somebody took the battery out of the grandfather clock and the pendulum stopped ticking. That's when it stopped. God's prophetic calendar. The 483 years stopped. The 69 weeks of years stopped. So we come now to the subject of a gap. A gap of time between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. Okay, now you think this would be an easy subject, but it ain't. <laughs> because there has been an ongoing debate about this. Is there a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks for centuries? It goes all the way back. Now, the apostles believed in a gap, and I give that to you in your um, lesson, because we know Polycarp was a disciple of John, and he believed in a gap and a literal millennial kingdom and his student, Irenaeus, and all, a lot of the early church fathers believed in premillennialism. I'm going to be explaining that. But then they got away from that over the years because the church, unfortunately, was following a man named Augustine who believed that God was finished with Israel and Israel's out of the picture. And, th and the theology changed way back in the third century A.D., so there's been this ongoing theological debate. And the basic difference in this debate, I'm going to try to put it succinctly for you at the beginning, and then we'll get into a little more details today. It's a thinking day. Put the thinking caps on, all right? Um, one side says that the 70th week of this prophecy has already been fulfilled. It's past history. These people are called amillennialists, and I'll talk more about what that means. But um, they believe, and preterists, we've talked about preterists, they're amillennialists. They believe that it's all in the, in the past. And then another branch of amillennialism is the historicist school. They believe, well, it's kind of just still being fulfilled by the church. 
so that we're really sort of in the 70th week. So some say it's been fulfilled. Some say it's ongoing. Got, got that? That's one side of the debate. The other side of the debate, debate is premillennialism, which teaches, no, the 70th week has not yet been fulfilled. It is yet future. And we're living in a gap of time between the 69th and the 70th. And that gap of time is called what? The church age. All right, so that's the basic difference. Now, premillennialism, and I am a premillennialist. Probably most of you are as well. Maybe you don't know that, but when I describe to you what it teaches, you'll know that you fall in that category. But it teaches that Christ will literally return to earth before the 1,000-year kingdom called the Millennial Kingdom. That's why it's called millennium, because it's a millennium long. Before, pre, okay? He'll come before, pre-millennialism. And that he is actually the one who will establish that kingdom. He will set it up. The church won't get the world so much better that they will set up the kingdom, and then he can come. That was called post-millennialism. You are hard-pressed to find a post-millennialist today. After World War I and World War II, they kind of gave up on the church getting the world better for Christ to come. <laughs> so mostly it's between amillennialism and premillennialism. They uh, Premillennialists, we say that when the Lord returns, Israel will be corporately saved. She'll see him, she'll acknowledge him, she'll repent, just like Joseph's brothers, you know, she'll recognize him. And all of God's covenant promises to her will be fulfilled, those six objectives that we read about in verse 24. It is premillennialism's use of the literal interpretation of Scripture, you know, about end times, that necessitates, because we take the Bible literally, except when it's obviously symbolic, and every symbolism pictures something literal, but um, because we take the Bible literally, that necessitates a yet unfulfilled rapture, Got news for you, the rapture hasn't happened yet. We have not been left behind. Uh, <laughs> it necessitates a seven-year-long tribulation that hasn't happened yet. That seven-year-long tribulation is the 70th week. It necessitates a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, a yet future individual known as the Antichrist, and his unprecedented persecution of the Jewish people of Israel, and the bodily second coming of Christ, that he, when he returns, not like some say that he returned back in 1844, or whatever it was, you know, or 70 AD, he just came spiritually, you know, in the clouds and nobody saw him. We believe that when he returns, Revelation 1-7, every eye shall see him. It'll be just like he ascended, It'll be bodily. He'll come back down to the Mount of Olives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Bodily return of Christ. Um, and then, of course, he will set up his literal kingdom uh, of heaven on earth for 1,000 years. So premillennialists do hold to a gap of time between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week because none, we say, none of these events have happened yet. They have not happened. And they will happen in this last seven-year period of time. All God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled, etc. 
The amillennial Bible view of interpreting end time scriptures rejects the concept of a literal 1,000 year kingdom of God on earth following the Lord's return. Amillennialism believes that end times prophecies found in such books as Daniel and in the Lord's Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25 and in the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled. Or, as I said, they're in the process of being sort of spiritually fulfilled today through the church. They also believe that prophecies concerning the kingdom are either being spiritually fulfilled, you know, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is in you, to believers, that that's how the kingdom is being lived out in us, through us, here on earth today. So this is, you know, the 70th week. Or they say that um, the kingdom is, is in heaven. It's being fulfilled by the saints of heaven. All right. Amillennialism, out of necessity, takes a non-literal approach to the scriptures of end times. An allegorical or a figurative or a metaphoric approach. They have to spiritualize a lot of it to, to work it out. Amillennialists say that the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy immediately followed the 69th week without any break. Okay, so just immediately. And this is called the continuous fulfillment theory. And to do this, as I said, they have to spiritualize. They also have to use inconsistent Bible interpretation. I talked about this a little bit last time. But after having used the weeks of this prophecy, you know, the word weeks, it means a heptad or a shavuim. It means sevens, a group of sevens. So for the first 69 weeks, they had to make the weeks be years because history doesn't allow them to do anything else with it. We know from history that he did mean years because 49 years, Jerusalem was rebuilt. You know, 483 years, the Messiah, the prince came. So they acknowledge that for the first 69 weeks, it's speaking of weeks of of years, seven years for each week. Get it? But when they come to the 70th week, suddenly they have to be inconsistent. And all of a sudden, the weeks now mean days, seven days. For some of them who say that the 70th week was actually fulfilled in the Lord's Passion Week. That was the 70th week of the prophecy. So they suddenly become days. There's another problem with that because the Passion... Well, there's a lot of problems with that, but the Passion Week (laughs) was actually eight days because it went from Sunday, Palm Sunday, to Resurrection Sunday. But anyhow, so they used days, some of them. Others of the Amillennials will say that the 70th week actually went all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. So now they have to make that week's be 38 years instead of seven years because it was about 38 years after Jesus, you know, ascended to heaven. Um, And then the ones that say it's continually going on, they have to make the week some 2,000 years now, don't they? So that's called inconsistent Bible interpretation. And since that's so obviously inconsistent, they have decided to spiritualize the number 70. And say that, oh, well, it wasn't really a literal 70 weeks that God was talking about. It was just, you know, well, seven is the number of perfection. So they're just speaking about everything will be perfect at the end of all this. But there's nothing in the text that could suggest 
to take this non-literal approach to the numbers. How long had, why did Daniel go to prayer to begin with? Because of numbers, right? He figured, you know, he heard from Jeremiah that they would be in captivity how many years? 70. Literal, right? Literal 70, which was based on the fact that they hadn't obeyed the Sabbath law of the land rest for 490 years, so they, the land was due 70. That was all literal, right? That's why he went. So he was thinking about 490 years and 70 years, and so God gives him a prophecy about 490 years or 70 weeks. So there's nothing suggesting to take it symbolic. Now think about this. You really have to put your thinking hats on now for this next sentence. Gabriel came while Daniel's down on his knees praying, came to give Daniel a literal interpretation of a symbolic vision, to give him understanding of that vision. Remember in verse 23, that's what Gabriel says. I've come to give you understanding of your vision because Daniel is still perplexed about the vision of the he goat and the ram and probably the beasts and all of that. He's trying to put the whole thing together. So Gabriel comes to give him a literal interpretation of symbolic visions, of something symbolic. So it's very illogical and it's very nonsensical for men like these amillennialists to come along and then give a symbolic interpretation of a literal explanation. Did you get that? Good. Good, good, good. I told the ladies yesterday, I think I've said this before, but one of the best classes I ever took in college was logic. I think they should teach logic in the grammar schools, high schools. I mean, it's just, it was, it's just, it's just a wonderful subject, logic, because so many people in this world are illogical. And, and you try to debate with them, and they just don't even care sometimes. You know, well, you just, you logically showed them the truth. And they still say, well, I don't care. I'm going to believe what I believe. <laughs> it's just, they do. I mean, they do. <laughs> All right. Well, premillennialists disagree with the continuous fulfillment theory. Premillennialism disagrees with that theory. And I'm going to give you some reasons. I think one of your homework questions is, um, how would you support a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks? And I'm going to give you some reasons for why I support the gap idea. Okay, number one, the word after. Let me read verse 26. And after, see that word after? What does after mean? After. Does it mean before? Does it mean before? Does it mean during? It means after, doesn't it? And after. But see, if you don't take the Bible literally, and if you don't believe it's inspired, you can do anything with after. But I do say that every word is God inspired. And it says, and after three score and two weeks, Shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself? And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. All right, so first of all, I support the gap because of the word after. If the events in this verse that I just read, which are about the Messiah's death, his cutting off, and Jerusalem's destruction, if those events were to have occurred already in the 70th week, then Gabriel would have just gone on in this verse and said, and Messiah shall be cut off. But instead he said, and after 
the 62 weeks which are added to the seven, after the 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. He could have said, you know, and, or he could have used the words in the midst of the week, which he does do down in verse 27. You can look at it and you'll see he uses those words in the midst of. If these things were to happen in the midst of the 70th week, he could have used that, but he didn't. He says, after the conclusion of the 69th week, these things will happen. Messiah cut off, Jerusalem destroyed. All right, that's one reason. Now, Amillennius will argue and say that time gaps do not occur in the Bible in grammatically connected sentences or that prophetic clocks do not stop. Nobody comes along and takes the battery out of the clock. They, they'll say that just doesn't happen. But that simply is not true. It isn't true. They can say that and they can convince people who listen to them with all their high rhetoric, but it isn't true. I'll give you one example. Think of Christmas cards. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. Christmas card, right? What's that speaking of? The Lord's birth. Same sentence, Isaiah 9, 6. What are the next words? And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Was the government of the whole world put on his shoulders at his birth? No. When will that happen? Second coming. Right there you have a big gap of at least now 2,000 years in one verse. There are lots of examples of that in the scripture. And I give them all to you in your notes. I don't give them all to you, but I give a bunch of them to you. Um, But let me tell you of another one. And and this is from the Lord himself. We believe that there is and can be a time gap in a grammatically connected sentence or in a, uh, you know, several sentences or whatever. It's called the law of double reference. And Jesus himself verified this law in his first words of his public ministry. Amazing. It was important to him. And he demonstrated it on the the first day he spoke in his public ministry when he went, remember, straight to his synagogue, his hometown synagogue there in Nazareth. And when it came time in the service of the synagogue for someone to read from the scripture, he stood up and they handed him a scroll. And it just happened to be from the book of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. So the Lord read these words. He read, and this is from uh, 61, verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Of course it was. He had just been baptized. And uh, uh, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he, it says in Luke, closed the book, sat down, and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Meaning, I am your Messiah. (laughs) They all knew that was a messianic prophecy. And he said, this has now been fulfilled in me, in my first coming. Of course, they didn't know about two comings, but he, you know what he did? He stopped reading in the middle of a verse. He stopped reading in the middle of verse 2. 
and didn't finish the verse because verse 2 goes on to then talk about the day of vengeance, which will not happen until his second coming, when he will come as righteous judge. So he right there showed a gap of time in a single verse, which we know has now been some 2,000 years. There was also a time gap in chapter 2 of Daniel. Remember from the legs of iron to the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay? Big time gap there. And what about the fourth dreadful beast of Daniel chapter 7 with the iron teeth and the iron nail, brass nails or whatever it all was? And then there's a gap of time until you get to the revived Roman Empire of the ten horn stage with the middle horn, you know, the one little horn coming out of the middle. There's a time gap there, and there's lots of other examples. So that's the second argument. Third argument for a gap. If there is not a gap of time, as the amillennialists would say, then all six purposes of God given in verse 24 must already be fulfilled because they're his whole reason for giving this 70 weeks prophecy, right? That's the whole purpose. When they're over, and they say they're over now, then all these things will have been fulfilled that we read about, you know, uh, he would finish the transgression for Israel, make an end of her sins, reconcile her for her iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, etc. <coughs> but <clears throat> how, I ask the question, how can these be fulfilled when Israel, and remember this whole prophecy is given to who? Daniel's people, the Jews, and Daniel's for Daniel's city. Uh, how can these be fulfilled when Israel is not yet a redeemed people? Israel is still in unbelief. And um, would you say that she, Israel, and even we, the church, are living today in an age of righteousness? God forbid if we are, right? That would be pretty scary if this is it. This is the age of righteousness. Mm. So um, the only way, the only way to say that these six purposes are fulfilled is to remove Israel from this whole pro these promises, to remove her, replace her with the church, <clears throat> and then spiritualize the kingdom. And that's exactly what amillennialists do, exactly what they do. <clears throat> However, premillennialists totally reject the concept of God ever breaking his covenant promises with anyone, Israel or with the church. And we reject the idea... <laughs> which is just common sense, that we are living today in an age of righteousness. Well, another support for a time gap between the 69th and 70th week concerns the temple. Now, notice, notice this. The temple is called the sanctuary in verse 26. The temple is destroyed in verse 26, right? I just read that. The it's destroyed by the people of a coming prince. They will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the temple. Okay, so we know from history that the temple was destroyed. This has already come to pass. This is history. Thank you. It, it was destroyed in what year? Mm -hmm. And who destroyed it? <clears throat> the Romans, right. The Romans destroyed it. So we know that it's been destroyed. But if you look ahead at verse 27, we find out that there is a temple again. How do I know that? Well, because sacrifices are going to be stopped. And the oblation. You can't have sacrifices and an oblation if you don't have a temple. So that means 
there must be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. You with me? But the facts are that there isn't to this day since Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD. There has not yet been a rebuilt temple there on Mount Zion where the mosque of Omar sits today. Now the Jews would love to rebuild their temple, but they haven't been able to. There has not been a temple since 70 AD. So if all this is past history, how do they, how, how, how do they answer this temple business? You see, it just necessitates a yet future seven weeks of seven years in which there will be a temple and sacrifices will be again offered and the Antichrist is going to stop them in the middle of the tribulation. Following me? I hope you are. All right. So with that, that's five reasons or four reasons or whatever it is. I could give you more, but you're bored stiff already. You, <laughs> there is a gap. Okay, there is a gap. And we'll talk more about it as we go along. So the first event that Gabriel predicted after the 69 weeks of years are over would be that Messiah would be what? Cut off. Cut off. The Hebrew word for cut off is kara. It almost sounds like cutting, doesn't it? Like karate. <laughs> cut off. And it means to sever something from its source by a violent action. It's used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to being cut off as a criminal, as a common criminal. So some 571 years before Christ died, <clears throat> on Calvary, Gabriel used a precise word to indicate that the Messiah would die. He would be cut off by way of a violent death such as a common criminal. Amazing. It's, to me, it is just truly amazing that the Jewish people did not recognize who Jesus was, even though he presented himself as king on the very day God's prophetic calendar of Daniel 9 had predicted. And even though a few days later he was cut off violently as a common criminal, as Daniel 9 also predicted. It's amazing to me that she missed that. Furthermore, it's amazing that she missed Isaiah 53, where it says he was scourged with stripes. And that they missed Psalm 22, which talks about the fact that he, his hands and his feet would be pierced. She failed a prophecy test, didn't she? I mean, if she had looked a little further, she could have found out he came from the precise lineage back to David on both his mother and his stepfather's side, that he was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, etc., etc. All those prophecies that pointed to one man and one man only. It just amazes me that she missed it. That's the work of Satan, isn't it? Well, the phrase following the revelation that Messiah would be cut off is, but not for himself. And that has two meanings in the Hebrew. It could mean uh, basically the word nothingness, which means that he died in complete aloneness. And, and he did, because even his father, God the Father, had to turn, you know, forsake him, because he literally became the curse of sin for us, and God cannot look upon the curse of sin, and so he even had to forsake him while he was there on the cross. Also, um, he didn't receive anything that was rightly due him. He received nothing. 
right? That was rightly due him, like the royal glory as the king of David sitting on Jerusalem's throne. He received nothing that was due him, but he received everything that wasn't due him. So he received nothingness. But the phrase can also mean exactly like what it sounds like, but not for himself. He didn't die for himself, did he? Who did he die for? You, me, all of us. And that's, I think both meanings are incorporated here. But it does indicate 600 years previous to his death that his death would be for the benefit of others as a sacrificial, you know, substitutionary death. Isaiah 53 again points to that. As does, I mean, all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God had to slay an animal, an innocent animal, shed the blood of that animal in order to cover Adam and Eve with coats of skin. It all goes back to a substitutionary death. The whole Levitical system is about Passover lambs and scapegoats and all that is about substitutionary death of a sinless lamb. Well, the second event predicted in the gap is the destruction of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. Just as the cutting off of Messiah the Prince is now historical, so that even a five-year-old probably could read this, and when you said, well, what does it mean that the Messiah will be cut off, that little kid could say, oh, that means that he would have to die, that he died you know, by crucifixion. History has told us that, right? It's not hard to figure out. Well, either is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple hard for us to figure out. It's all past history. We know from history that how it happened. We know exactly how it happened. And that's what we're going to do real briefly is look um, at the Jewish war of A.D. 66 to 70. This is, you know, 66 to 70 years um, into where we are, A.D., after the death, Anno Domino or whatever it stands for. Uh, to see how precisely this prophecy was fulfilled. You know, in Jesus' day, there was a sect of the Jews called the Zealots. You've heard of them. He even had one of his disciples who was a Zealot. That was Simon the Zealot. And perhaps Judas Iscariot was also a Zealot. And they based that on his last name, Iscariot, because it actually is a word that stands for that little dagger that they used to carry with them, Iscariot. And they would slit the throats of Roman soldiers when they found them alone. So Judas could have been of the zealot sect as well. Um, But they were called that because of their zeal for Judaism and their Jewish roots. They were extremely opposed to Roman rule over them. And they had, when Jesus came along, they had very high hopes in him. Because here was a guy with power, miraculous power and high popularity. I mean, he could easily gather the people around him build an army and overthrow Rome. So the zealots were all for Jesus initially, but when he refused to do their bidding, they turned on him and they despised him and they went along with his crucifixion. And this could be part of Judas's issue. We know he was also greedy for money, but this could be part of it too. Well, in the years that followed Christ's death and his resurrection, the zealots' protests against the Romans grew. It grew louder and louder, and they became ruthless in their violence against the Romans in their country. And when they they would hide in corners of buildings, and when a Roman would come, they'd kidnap him, and then they'd slit his throat, kill him. And they were even pretty violent against Jewish people who supported the Romans. In May A.D. 66... The Roman governor of Judah, 
you know, another guy to replace Pontius Pilate. His name was Gessius Florus. He unwisely, unwisely demanded that a huge tribute of gold be taken from the temple treasury. And you know that that didn't go over too well with the Jewish people. So they gathered in protest in the temple courtyard, you know, against this horrible thing, robbing their temple treasury. But then the governor did another very unwise thing. He set his troops on them, and in one day, 3,600 innocent Jewish people were slaughtered, including women. I don't know if there were children there or what, but 3,600 people, and all Jerusalem was in an uproar. They were hot to trot, and it just exploded. And so now, all of a sudden, the zealots have the backing of most of the Jewish people. All the Jewish people are becoming zealots and hating Rome. And together, they got together, and they did succeed in overtaking the Roman garrison and the, the military arsenal located at Masada. Masada, has anybody ever been to Masada? I've been there. It's a very, very sad place because of the history there. But they overtook Masada, and then Governor uh, Florus managed to escape from Jerusalem. He just left, and the Jews in August of A.D. 66 took over the city. They took over Jerusalem. They were freed from the Romans. Well, the other conquered nations of the Roman Empire were watching this, and if Israel was able to win her independence from Rome, then other people groups that had been conquered might also revolt. And the emperor of Rome realized this. You know who was the emperor at this time? A real nutcase. His name was Nero. He was the emperor at this time, and he knew he had to deal with this thorn in his side, this people called the Jews. So he sent his best military commander, a man by the name of Titus Flavius Vespasian, to, to go to Israel. And he went with 60,000 soldiers, and it was very easy for Vespasian to conquer the northern province of Galilee. He did that very quickly. And he took with him as a prisoner the Galilean military commander. He kept him alive, but he took him as a prisoner. His name was Flavius Josephus. And so, for the rest of this Jewish war, he was a first-hand witness of everything that took place, and he recorded it, wrote it all down, and he became known as the famous Jewish historian Josephus. Well, by the spring of A.D. 68, most of Judea, all right, he conquered Galilee, and then uh, he came down, and he conquered most of the southern province of Judea so that all that was left was the capital of Jerusalem. However, I think God gave the Jewish people a year of grace because it was at this time that Nero totally lost his mind and committed suicide. And so for the next year, there, were, there was a fight over who was going to take his place as the next emperor. There were two emperors that came and went very quickly because one was assassinated and the next one committed suicide. <laughs> I would not want to be an emperor for anything, would you? <laughs> so um, finally, whoever, the Senate, I guess, decided, let's call General Vespasian to be our next emperor. 
Well, he's down in Israel, so he gets word. This reminds me of Alexander the Great, because his father, same thing happened. Anyway, um, so they get Vespasian, and he sails from Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, to go back to Rome, and he leaves the war, the Jewish war, to his energetic son, Titus. Titus Vespasian. And Titus immediately marched to the city of Jerusalem and camped there. And he had more forces join him, cavalry and some other auxiliary forces. So now he has an army of 80,000 men outside the city of Jerusalem. And he attacks uh, the walls of the city with a Roman weapon known as a scorpion. It actually would um, catapult large stones and debris against the wall. And actually, some of, a lot of them would go over the wall and crush the people that you know, were inside the city if they happened to be standing around there. So he also, he also used battering rams, big, huge battering rams, against, you know, to smash the walls so they could get in the city. And then when someone inside the city at nighttime tried to escape, you know, maybe to spy on the Romans or to get some bread for their family, they would catch them and they would crucify them. And Josephus tells us that as many as 500 people a day were crucified. They literally destroyed all the forests for miles and miles and miles because cutting down trees to use them for crucifixes. Josephus writes in detail how the stench was just horrific from the bodies. Well, finally... um, Titus built a large mound of dirt around the whole city. Actually, he, he, he dug a trench around the whole city. And, for, you know, from that trench, the dirt that came out, he put up a, a big mound, a, a big hill around the city and blocked all the gates so that nobody could get out. <clears throat> and his purpose, his whole purpose was to starve them into submission, into surrender, He even sent their fellow countryman, Josephus, out to them twice. You know, Josephus went out there, and he stood at the wall, and he shouted up, you know, my countrymen, surrender. He doesn't want to kill you. He will let you live in peace. Just surrender. And they wouldn't do it. And to this day, Jews consider Josephus to be a traitor because of that. But he was trying to spare their lives. And he was very, very kind about Jesus. I don't know if he was a Christian, but he had nothing but good things to say about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ in Luke did warn, when you see the enemy approaching, flee. And people who did believe Jesus' words in Luke 19, 41 to 44, whatever it is, 42, did escape. When they saw the Romans coming, they escaped to Petra, and they did live. They survived through this Roman war. When you believe Jesus, you can get saved. <laughs> um, that had a double meaning, didn't it? <laughs> so anyway, he built this large uh, wall around the city. And that's an exact fulfillment of what Jesus said on Palm Sunday. Remember, he said, oh, you could have had peace, but because you missed the time of your salvation, he said these words. He said, for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. Luke 19, 43. Is that not precise? How did he know that 38 years ahead of time? Because he's God. Rome's battering rams kept pounding away at the walls, and finally they broke through. But when they got uh, into the city and tried to break down the great wooden gates of the temple, 
Remember the temple, Herod's temple was massive, had big gates around it. And uh, these Romans are tiring of these battering rams. I mean, they've been doing that for a long, long time, and they got impatient. And so one soldier took a torch and set the gates on fire. And soon the flames were just raging everywhere in the temple complex. Well, Titus saw the flames, and he was outraged. He had not given orders to burn anything. And he, he was very, very angry, and he tried to get his soldiers to put out the fire but to no avail. Now think of the prophecy in 9.26 of Daniel. What does it say? The peop- Take out the little prepositional phrase um, about the prince. Take out of the prince that shall come, and what does it say? And the people shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That is actually what happened. It wasn't Titus. It was the people that destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Well, in the blazing heat of the raging fire, guess what happened to the gold and the silver of the temple? And it was loaded with gold and silver. And that heat, it melted, and it seeped down into the very crevices of the large stones of the temple. So when things cooled off, the Romans, in their greed, took one stone upon off of another, they dismantled every single stone so that they could get to that hardened, melted gold and silver. And again, we go back to the Lord's words, prophetic words. Remember that day when his disciples were admiring the temple? All the Jews were so proud of that temple. It was just, you know, oh, they just took, that was their pride and joy. And the disciples were looking at the buildings of the temple complex, and they said to Jesus, Master, See what manner of stones and, and what buildings are here. And they're just saying, ah, this is magnificent, Lord, isn't it? And remember what he said? He said, seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. This was true of the temple And basically the whole city, there is only one little piece of something that was not taken down, and they call it the Wailing Wall. It's the only thing that remains from that city and temple back 70 A.D. Well, in verse 26, Gabriel said that the destruction of Jerusalem would be like the devastation done by a flood. And he said that desolations of war determined by sovereign God would continue to the end. He uses the word the end twice in verse 26. So it is very likely um, that this gap time was saying that Israel would continue to experience desolations from that time forward all the way to the end. And this certainly, certainly has been true. I mean... A.D. 70, destruction by the Romans was only just the beginning. Then you had the medieval crusades against the Jews, killed many, 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 and Christians. And then you had the Spanish Inquisition, and you had the Russian pogroms, and you had, of course, Hitler's Holocaust. And today, even within their country, they have Palestinian turmoil, and they're surrounded by people who want to just obliterate them off the face of the earth, right? So these desolations, like a flood, have been continuously, and they will be until the end. 
when finally the time of Jacob's trouble is all over, when the smiting stone cut out without hands returns, the Lord Jesus. He will not only end the time of Jacob's trouble, but will end, it will end at the same time. It ends the times of the Gentiles. So what we find so far is that everything in verse 24 to verse 26, those first three verses of this prophecy are now history. And that gives us clear evidence as to the literal accuracy of God's word. Did everything predicted in those verses, other than 24, which is what will happen at the end, but did the other things, did they come to pass literally? Yes. So if they came to pass, the first 69 weeks of years came to pass literally, not allegorically, then why would we switch gears and say, well, the 70th week, those last seven years are going to be fulfilled, not literally, but spiritually. Would we say that? No, it doesn't make sense. So, and it's only a futuristic interpretation that allows for a literal fulfillment. In other words, this hasn't happened yet. So let's look now at the third division of one week, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate or the desolator, the one who made desolate. All right, what we find in this last verse is that Gabriel gave da da um, David, Daniel, he gave Daniel the, uh, the uh, event that will begin this last 70th week, the seven years, the event that will begin it, something that will happen in the middle of it, and how it will end. And so those I'm calling the covenant of the Antichrist, the abomination of the Antichrist, and the destruction of the Antichrist. First, we need to know who the antecedent for the pronoun he is so that we know who the one confirming a covenant with many is. Now, you think it would be a simple issue, wouldn't you? Where it says, and he shall confirm. Because grammatically, in, in English, you take a pronoun and you go back to see the previous personal pronoun, and then you know who the he is referring to. Well, if you do that, the antecedent is the prince that shall come, the coming prince will call him. Um, and, that, and that seems very obvi obvious. You know, as in chapter 7's little horn, this coming prince is connected uh, with a revived Rome of some form because he comes from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and they were the Romans. So he comes from them, so he's a Roman. He's of the same people who destroyed Jerusalem. So in a sense, it's essence, he is, we could say, the last Caesar of, the, of a revived form of, of ancient Rome. But as simple as that sounds, I'm millennialist, and I'm telling you, if you go online and say, uh, you know, you can type up there, search, who is the he in Daniel 9.27? And probably 90% of what pops up will be people saying that the he is the coming prince, uh, is Messiah, is Messiah the prince. <laughs> they do. It blew me away. I said, 
I kept reading that over and over again, and I was hard-pressed to find uh, somebody online that said, no, this is the coming prince, the, the Antichrist. Most of them said it was Jesus, the Messiah. Yeah, but they say, well, that was, you know, they have all, all these, and the P would be capital too, right? Um, the King James people and the other interpreters knew better than they do. They didn't capitalize those. But anyhow, they say that the covenant that he, was, that he confirmed, that Jesus confirmed with Israel, was the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. And the, you read these guys, and they sound pretty reasonable because, again, they have this fancy language and the way to talk, and they need to do, take things. It sounds reasonable if, <laughs> if you take the text completely out of context and if you spiritualize it and you twist it and you don't match it up with other scripture, then you can, and they've deceived a lot of people because amillennialism is more prevalent by far than premillennialism in Christendom. But I've got news. There was no seven-year covenant or even a three-and-a-half-year covenant made by Christ with Israel at the time of his first coming. He didn't make any covenant that he then broke in the middle of it. Uh, his whole ministry, public ministry, didn't even last seven years, did it? And also, he, d he did make a covenant with them, but they haven't accepted it yet, the new covenant. And when they do accept it, he won't ever break it because you know what kind of covenant it is? It's a covenant in his blood, and it's an everlasting covenant. Jesus Christ will never break his covenant promises to Israel or to us. And Daniel chapter 11, there's this long prophecy. We'll get to it in a couple years, but <laughs> there's this prophecy about the king of the north and the king of the south and the king of the north and talk about him. But all of a sudden in verse 36, amazing, it jumps a gap of time. Verse 36 jumps to talk about an antichrist, the antichrist. There's another time gap right there, okay? And it says of this, this Antichrist, he's going to do according to his will. He's going to exalt and magnify himself above every god. He's going to speak blasphemous things against the god of gods. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul speaks about the time when Christ's coming. You know, the, the Thessalonians thought they had maybe missed the rapture. But he says, no, 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 no. You haven't missed anything because Christ's return is not going to happen until, first of all, there is a falling away an apostasy, and then the son of, the man of sin will be revealed. A man of sin, the son of perdition will be revealed. And he went on and said, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, therefore, you take these other passages, and there's many more, but you take them, and you put them in with this context, and the he in verse 27 cannot refer to the Messiah, the prince, to Jesus Christ. He would never speak against God, the God of God's his father. He's not the man of sin. He wouldn't speak against himself because he is God. The prince who is to come, <clears throat> excuse me, is a reference to the yet future final king of the people responsible for the last destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and they were de definitely Romans. They were Romans. Was Jesus a Roman? Was he a Gentile? No, he was a Jew. This prince is not Christ. Think about this. He was cut off in verse 25. So what's he doing there in verse 26? I mean, 27. 
<laughs> he was cut off. And he, where has he been ever since? Sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Um, this prince, this coming prince in verse 27, comes into history after Christ's death. And yet before Christ's return. And therefore, I mean, when Christ returns, he destroys this guy. Would Christ return and then destroy himself if he's the he? There we go with the logic again, right? It's not logical. Neither should we see this prince as Titus. Now, some do. Some will say this was Titus. And it's, you know, all past history. And the, uh, but we, can't, we say, no, can't be Titus because the, the emphasis in the verse is on the people. He is just a subordinate clause. That's called a subordinate clause of the prince that shall come. If you were diagramming a sentence, the prince wouldn't be the subject, would he? The people would be the subject of the prince would be down there, you know. I'm doing that with my sixth grader, so I'm refreshing it all. <laughs> so this individual, this coming prince, is not described as a prince who is coming with the people who destroy the temple. He is seen and worded here as a detached and yet future person, one who shall come, right? Isn't that what it says? The prince that shall come. So the suggestion is that the people and the prince don't arrive in history at the same time. The people destroyed the temple, but they're the people of the coming prince, which is telling us that this dude is going to be from the Roman Empire. Doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be Italian, okay? But he's going to come from somewhere within that expansive old ancient Roman Empire, which could mean he could even be, you know, Arabic or something like that because that covered a lot of those lands too. One thing I can tell you for sure is the Antichrist will not be Jewish. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> he won't be. He won't be Jewish. He's going to be from the Roman Empire. All right, now the he goes back to the prince of a people once in the Roman Empire. He's the coming king of fierce countenance. Remember him in Daniel chapter 7? With a blasphemous mouth who prevails against and wars with the saints. Now, would Jesus war with the saints? And he's consumed and destroyed in the end by the Son of Man. He is Paul's man of lawlessness. He's John's beast from the sea, which again tells me he's going to be a Gentile, not a Jew, because beast out of the sea, not out of the land. Now, the false prophet could be Jewish. All right, there's a fundamental relationship with Daniel's 70th week, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, and Revelation's seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. There's a relationship because all of those are talking about this final seven-year period we call the 70th week or the tribulation. What we have in Daniel, in, in uh, this one verse, is the outline for it. Just very brief outline. What begins it, what's in the middle, and what ends it. What Jesus gave in the Olivet Discourse kind of fleshes that out and gives us more details. And where do we get most of the details? from the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 19. The 70 weeks prophecy is the only biblical passage that tells us 
that it will be the confirmation of a covenant that will begin the countdown. When they put the battery back in the clock and the pendulum starts to swing again. What starts it? This confirming of a covenant. Not necessarily the signing of a covenant. The word confirm is gabar, and it means to strengthen a covenant. So this covenant will already be in existence, but he's going to come along and confirm it. Make it strong. It was weak. Nobody was really obeying it. Okay, He's going to strengthen it. And um, he's going to do it with many. Who are the many? The, the many all throughout Daniel speaks of Israel. But the word many tells us that there will be a few who will not go along with this. There will be a few righteous Jews who will not do it, but they'll be in the minority. And it tells us in Isaiah 28, which is really interesting. If you want to flip there, I'm going to do this really quickly. But it talks about Israel making a covenant with hell and with death. In other words, this covenant is not with Jesus Christ. It's not a covenant with life and with heaven. It's not the new covenant. It's a covenant with death and with hell. It's going to be with Satan and the unholy trinity, Antichrist and the false prophet. And it says that they do this instead of trusting in the tried stone. This is the verse in uh, verse 15 and 16 of Isaiah 28. It talks about instead of trusting in the precious cornerstone, the tried and tested stone, Jesus Christ, they're going to put their trust in this other guy. Because they, they think that they're going to avoid the overwhelming flooding. This goes along with the flood that Gabriel talks about. You know, things at the beginning of the birth pains. There's wars and rumors of wars and things are happening. And by the way, this peace treaty is symbolized by the white rider on the, rider on the white horse who comes in with a bow but no arrows. He comes in with a peace treaty thing. Um, and they're going to trust in him instead of trusting in Jesus Christ and the, 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 they think they're not going to be overwhelmed, but he breaks that and they are overwhelmed and they're trampled by his deceit. And this is their second greatest transgression. You know, they committed two transgressions. The first one was then when they rejected the true, their true Messiah. The second great transgression is going to be when they receive a false Messiah. And that's what Jesus said in John 5, 43, he said that. He said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. Transgression number one. And then he said, another shall come in his own name, and him ye will receive. There you go. The two worst transgressions of Israel. Well, the abomination in the middle of the seven years is that he will, of course, commit the blasphemous act of opposing God, setting himself up as God in the temple of God. This is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus himself said in the Olivet Discourse, it will occur in the middle of the tribulation, right after he breaks his covenant and causes their sacrifices to cease, he will set up an image of himself kind of like Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, and force everybody to bow to it or face the fiery furnace. And there will be Jews who won't, just like the three Hebrews. The 144,000 won't. And they're sealed, and they won't be destroyed, just like the three Hebrews. But oh, I could get off into other tangents. 
But <laughs> what's interesting here is that word overspreading. I'll, I'll quit with this. I have no idea what time it is, but if you have to go, go. But um, the word overspreading is really interesting. Now, that's a difficult term. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. You go, what in the world does that mean? Well, <clears throat> the word overspreading is kanaf. And it is difficult, but it's also very fascinating. That word describes the extreme part the extremity of a building, like its pinnacle or the steeple. Or it also can describe the outer extremities of a bird, which are what? Its wings. Or in the Bible, it is, this word is used for cherubs or seraphim, the two angelic being creatures that we know have wings. So Satan, you know, is a fallen cherub, right? Now, in Revelation 12, verses 7 to 10, John prophetically saw what we cannot see. He saw spiritual warfare in the heavenlies. Jesus gave him a vision, and he saw this yet future unseen spiritual warfare going on between Michael that mighty archangel Michael, and all the holy angels against Satan and the fallen angels. And the outcome was that Satan and the fallen angels were defeated and the prince of the power of the air, who had had dominion over the heavenly realms for all these hundreds of years, was cast out of the heavenlies down to earth. That warfare goes on in the middle of the seven years of the tribulation, right in the middle point. So could it be that could it be possible that when Satan was cast to earth, he swiftly, on a wing, headed straight to the wings of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, the rebuilt tribulation temple. You know, the idea of that fallen, dark, evil cherub sitting on top of the temple, that in itself is an abomination of desolation, right? Picture him up there on the top of the temple. But nobody could see that. The people couldn't see that. So I think possibly at this time that that is when he tempts the Antichrist, who is just a man, an evil man. But at that point, he tempts him. Maybe he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Who else did he take to the pinnacle of the temple and tempt him? But with a word of God, he's put that down, right? No way. But the Antichrist may just jump very swiftly at that offer of the whole world and submit to Satan. And it's at that point that we know the beast gives him his power and, I think, indwells him. And then he builds the statue, the image, and puts it in the holy of holies of the temple. The man does, working with Satan. And it says that Satan empowers this image to even breathe, like Darth Vader, you know, breathing and speaking. He can speak, you know, so it's deceiving, deceiving everybody. And then the mandatory worship or die, all that is, it could be in those in that word. It's just interesting to think about. Um, and then, of course, the greatest persecution 
that Israel has ever seen will go on for those next three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. But the Lord is using that terrible, terrible time of persecution to purge and to prune his beloved Israel and bring many faithful martyrs of faith into his eternal kingdom. And then the destruction of the Antichrist at the end is decreed by God. He knows when all this is going to happen. And anybody living in the tribulation can know when it's going to happen because they're going to know it's going to be exactly seven years long. Um, but he'll be, he'll be destroyed when that stone cut out without hands, the Son of God, comes back and crushes the whole anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Semitic world system. Amen? And he also destroys the unholy false trinity. Well, Satan is thrown for a thousand years into the bottomless pit. And what happens to the Antichrist and the false prophet? They are thrown eternally into the lake of fire. Good riddance once and for all. Bye-bye. Never see you again. And that's the end of the 490 weeks. And when Christ returns, all six of those promises in verse 24 will be realized. Okay, that only took us four weeks to do four verses. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, it is extremely sobering to study this old prophecy from Daniel and to see how clearly and undeniably it has been confirmed to us by, by history. How foolish it is for people out there in the world to think that something might change or, or, or to pretend or to spiritualize that, that these words will not come true, literally. They will come true, exactly as you said. So help us to see, Father, that life is not about uh, just having things and having fun and just dabbling around. We, we are called to live very serious lives for your glory and yet lives that you have promised will be full of joy and peace and love and that you make so abundantly available to us. But our lives should not be frittered away and wasted in living only for ourselves and for our own interests. So grant us that we may present ourselves anew today as living sacrifices to you and, and to know that we are people who are truly privileged above all others to live in these exciting last days when your return is imminent. And in, in the meantime, may we occupy, may we do the work to which you have called us, and may we be witnesses to you wherever we go. We ask these things in the blessed name of our Savior, for his sake. Amen. God bless you.